Hey, good morning and welcome to worship Mar Sunday, March 29. Hope you're having a great morning with your family, roommates, uh, friends there. Hey, we are here to worship our great God and King and we're delighted to be with you again this morning. Hey, I just want to remind you of something that is really beautiful that I was considering earlier this week and it's this truth that while we cannot physically be in the same room together right now, I want to remind you that all over our city and county in the West Georgia area, there are our brothers and sisters from the King's Chapel family gathering around in living rooms and bedroom, uh, around computer screens and TVs um, to worship together. And it's happening all over our community. And so while we can't physically be together, uh, we are all going to sing the same songs. We're going to listen and read the same word, and we're going to pray prayers together. And so just remind you of that, that while we physically can't be in the same room together, we are still a family. Uh, God is still um, the one who unites us and is watching over us. And that's true not just for our church, but for any church around the world right now. And so just want to remind you of that, um, that this may seem small and um, isolated, but it's not. God is still doing great and powerful things, and His family is still beautiful and connected around the world. Hey, a few announcements before we get to the sermon this morning uh, and to God's Word. I just want to remind you of a few things. First, you can find all the resources that we're producing online at the website. Also, every day, Monday through Friday, we are um, have various themes that we're putting on social media, some ways to get connected and see what's going on in the life of families uh, in our church and community groups as well. But what I really want to highlight that's going on on Mondays and Wednesdays are some missional activities uh, as a church. One on Monday, we have a prayer topic that we would really encourage you to get on, see that prayer topic, and write out a prayer in the comments section. Um, the, the lost art of written prayers. What we would still desire to connect um, as one unified corporate body in raising our prayer requests up to the Lord. And then second, on Wednesdays, we have a missional idea or creative idea that you can be doing even in your social distancing world right now to try to love your neighbors well. Um, to do mission. And so we're going to be producing and developing that each and every week. In the weeks ahead, there's going to be much larger things and simply small creative ways to engage your neighbors, as great as that is. But this is a world in which things are rapidly changing and there's going to be significant amount of sickness and perhaps financial needs in the future. And so we'll let you know about those. But we would encourage you, we know the first couple of weeks, it's been a lot of how do we do life now? Um, how do I kind of figure out how to create new rhythms with my family in the midst of all this. But this is an opportunity for us right now to be thinking about how we can do mission and outreach. That as a, as a believers, you should be thinking about that every single day. Well, hey, we are delighted to be together to worship. Um, and this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 32. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'm gonna, I want you to pause Pause the video, step away for a second. I'm not going to read the whole chapter here on the video, but I would encourage you to go read it yourself out loud, either by yourself or with your family. Give other folks, kids, opportunities to read sections of the scripture and then come back and listen to the sermon. So take a moment to do that now. Well, hey, um, we saw last week that um, what initiated the crisis in Exodus 32 of this relationship uh, between God and his people um, is that they created an, a golden calf and worshipped it 
um, in a gross and pagan form of worship. And what we've seen is, and we talked about last week, is what this put into crisis was the beautiful covenant relationship and threatened God's presence with the people. And what we see is that when God's people violate their relationship with God in this way, that what you would have read in verses 7 through the rest of the chapter is an immediate, rightful, wrathful response by God. If you could imagine it this way, that God, um, that what happened in the giving of the law and the people uh, coming out to God is they were saying their I do's to God, that they were in a wedding ceremony. And God has come to them and said, this is the way that I want you to live, to have the best and, and most beautiful life, a life that is loving to me and to others and that is for your flourishing. And they looked at that covenant, the covenant law, and they said, yes, God, this is what we want. And now Moses is up in the middle of essentially the honeymoon period with, between God and his people. And Moses is up on the mountain getting the instructions for the tabernacle. It's like he's out talking to the accountant for where God will live with his people. And while the, he is away getting those instructions, the people commit this horrendous act of idolatry. It would be like a husband going off to make plans for his, he and his wife's new um, house that after, right after they've gotten married, and he comes home to find his wife cheating on him. Now, God's response to that is not, yeah, that's cool, it's okay, I'll forgive it, I'll overlook that. No, his response is immediate and rightful wrath. He is angry. And in fact, God would not be good if he was indifferent to the Israelites' idolatry. If you could imagine that, if a husband came home and saw that his, his spouse was cheating on him or vice versa, and he or she were simply to look at their spouse and say, yeah, I don't care. This is no big deal. You would say, that is not a good spouse. They should be enraged. They should be jealous. They should be angry. They should, be, they should fight for their marriage in that moment. And in this moment of crisis, following the sin of idolatry by the people of Israel, uh, when they made and worshipped a golden calf, this moment in their history is a microcosm of our relationship with God as we see throughout the scriptures. Is that God has invited us into relationship with Him, is, in, is offering to give us His presence forevermore. And in our sin and our idolatry, the question is, what will happen? What do we deserve when we, we, we reject God's presence and His covenant relationship with us? Well, we deserve wrath. We deserve to be pushed away and to receive God's rightful, just judgment. And that is what the people of God should get in this moment. We are idolaters, and we deserve the wrath of God. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here for just a minute and talk about why I want to continue to address this, even in the midst of the crisis that we're facing. And it's this. this there are certainly things I could go talk about, and there may be in weeks to come, Times when I need to go jump back into the Psalms and passages of comfort and talk about suffering. But I want to remind you of this, that for most of the history of the world, people have had to face plagues and the death of their wives in childbirth, the death of even more children in young age, the death of fathers and husbands at an early age, despotic dictators and roving armies. That is the broken world that we live in. And if you actually look at the context of Israel's idolatry, is there are people who've just come out of 400 years of unmitigated, unbelievable suffering in slavery to Egypt. Now they're wandering around in the desert, um, 
feeling like they're at, uh, at risk of roving armies. They are struggling to get food and water. They're, they're suffering in many ways. And now their leader is quarantined up on the mountain for 40 days. And so even in the midst of tough circumstances, what I want you to see is we don't get a pass on idolatry. This moment is not a time for us to grow light on sin and idolatry in our lives. Instead, we actually have a moment right now where many of our idols are being revealed to us. And the question and the thing that we must confront is and see is how does God respond to that idolatry in our lives? What we see in the early parts here in verses 7 through 10 or 11 is that God's response to Moses is, I want to be done, I want to do away with them. But as the passage goes on, what I want you to see is this, that instead of receiving the wrath of God, we get something else. I want you to see three things that we get instead of God's wrath. God's people, instead of God's wrath, they instead get God's covenant faithfulness. What happened in in the intervening moments after God comes to Moses and is laying out his plan to threaten Israel, he comes a moment to Moses and says, essentially, Moses, hold me back. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to destroy him. What happens in that moment? Moses intercedes. Moses looks at God and he says, God, you can't kill him. You can't do away with him because God, they are yours. They are your family. You adopted them. This is how Moses prays to God in his intercession. And Moses says, God, you can't kill him because the whole purpose for, for them being brought out of Egypt and going to the promised land is so that they can be a light to the nations. And if you kill them, what will the nations think about you? And, and you can't kill them because you promised, you promised to their forefathers that you would be faithful and gracious. And you swore on your own character, so you can't, you can't do it. And you can't, God, you can't kill them, you can't destroy them because you are a gracious God. That is your character, that is who you are. Moses intercedes this way. He actually lays out before God the case of God's glory and God's covenants. And so God, he doesn't destroy them. Actually, it says in verse 14, it says, the Lord relented. He relented of his wrath. He set down his wrath so that he might keep his covenant people and keep his promises even when we have not, even when they did not. I'm going to stop and apply this really quickly to you and to say this this morning. That the midst of this season, as we looked at last week, your idols may be being revealed to you, and it may not be comfortable, and it may bring some significant worry and concern in your life, that you are, um, you are being confronted with the ways in which you are unfaithful to God. But understand this, that because this is a God who is um, merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, this is a God who when we have found that we're chasing after other lovers, that we go running back to him and we say, I am sorry for what I've done. And we lay out before him our confession and our repentance. His character makes it safe for you to do that. And so that's the first thing I want to call you to do this morning, that where you, where you see your idols, see also the character of your God. And by the nature of God's character, it woos us in to say, hey, come and lay before my feet your failures and your running after other lovers. Don't run away, keep running away from me, but run back to me. The second response we see that God gives instead of wrath, is instead of a full fury of God's wrath being poured out on Israel, God instead pours out his covenant discipline. 
Now, what happens here is Moses comes down the mountain, and he and Joshua hear these frightful sounds of, of what's going on in the camp. And they're wondering, was there a war? Was there a battle? Did we win? Did we lose? And then Moses turns the corner, and he sees what God already knows of Israel's unbelievable unfaithfulness and idolatry. And now it's Moses' turn to get hot. And he carries out actually a series of disciplinary actions against Israel. Now, here's what I want you to see here is that, that when God says he relents of giving the full force of his fury, that does not mean that God in his love, when we um, are idolatrous, when we run after other gods and other things, that that doesn't mean that God is not going to actually bring temporal and momentary discipline in our life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so what I want you to see as we move through Exodus 32, there's going to be three scenes here in successive order where Moses will be God's tool to bring temporal discipline um, to the people of Israel. First, in verses 15 through 20, we see that God destroys their idols. In verse 20, it says this, He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. What Moses does here is he destroys the idol, he grounds it into a powder, and then he, he mixes it with water and makes the people drink the very idols that they had just been worshiping. Now, scholars not, are not entirely sure why it is that Moses uh, went about what he did here. It could be that Moses is simply just showing in an over-the-top way how much he hates this idol and hates idolatry. Um, it, I remember there was a season in our life right after we had had Lila, we had a little infant in the house. In the midst of the first weeks of her life in our home, we had a tick infestation in our home. And we cleaned like crazy and we fumigated and we bombed the house and yet we still couldn't seem to get rid of all the ticks. And then one day I finally found the source. We had recently moved and in the corner of one of the, the moving boxes, I found a mother tick the mother load of ticks. And when a tick gives birth, literally the mother explodes and thousands of ticks go, go everywhere around the mother. And I found this scene, this exploded, um, engorged mother tick with thousands of ticks around her. And I sprayed them with Raid, with a tick killer. Then I swept them up into a baggie, took them outside. And in my anger, how much I hated these ticks, I jumped on the ticks, and then I lit them on fire and burned them all up. This was, of course, almost silly and ridiculous behavior, but I had such anger for what the threat these ticks had been to my daughter and to my wife's comfort and well-being. But it could also be that Moses isn't just simply giving an over-the-top display of how much he hates these idols. It could also be that Moses was sticking the Israelites' noses into their sin here by having them drink the water. Almost like you would stick the, the nose of a dog into his own poop if he pooped in the house. Do you see what you have done? Do you see how nasty, how disgusting this is? It could also be he's simply giving them the full taste of their idolatry so that they will never forget it. There's a story of one of the grandfathers in our family um, of when he was a young teenager and his mother found a pack of cigarettes in his room. And her discipline was that she came out and she had him smoke the entire pack of cigarettes right there in front of her. And he got so sick that he never again had another cigarette in his whole life. 
He, Moses may have been trying to communicate to the people of Israel and show them this is how gross your sin is. I never want you to forget it. Never forget how sick it made you feel to reject God in this way. Well, whatever reason for Moses' actions here, we know this for clear, for certain, that what Moses is doing is destroying their idols. And what I want you to understand is this, and perhaps you've experienced this in your life, is one of the greatest acts of covenant love that God will sometimes bring in our life is, and it will feel like punishment, and it'll feel like death, but often he will come and he will destroy our idols. This is the reality that in the last couple of weeks some of us may be facing, is that we are looking at God and what he is doing in the world around us, and we're looking at the way he's not just exposing our idols, but maybe even destroying our idols. I remember as a part of my testimony, when I was 18 and 19 years old, God seemed to sweep away a lot of the things that I had in my early years, really relied upon for identity and security. And I describe, I've always described it this way, that God was a bull in the china shop of my idols. And that perhaps that's how it feels right now in your life, that God is a bull crushing your retirement security and your sense of worth and your vocation or your sense of your own safety in the midst of all this. Well, not only did God, does God destroy our idols as an act of just loving discipline, we also see that he confronts our sin. In verses 21 through 24, Moses goes and confronts Aaron for his poor leadership in leading the people of Israel and giving in to their desires. You ever had this happen? To have a brother come to you? Aaron has his literal brother come to him and confront him over his sin. It is never fun but it is actually a sign of God's mercy when a brother or sister in Christ comes and confronts you in your sin. We may want to be like Aaron, who when he is confronted, we blame others and we try to justify our sin, but a loving God never lets us go on our merry way thinking that our sin is no big deal. He confronts us. It's an act of discipline. It's an act of love. And then third, I want you to see in verses 25 through 29, discipline enacted. In verses 25 through 29, Moses raised up kind of a, a, Lev, a Levite hit squad to bring judgment down on some 3,000 men of Israel who they put to death for their idolatry. Now, we don't know why there's these particular 3,000 were the ones who were put to death. Perhaps they were the leaders in the uprising to build the idol. Perhaps they were particularly egregious and vile in the way that they worshiped the golden calf. It may have even been that even they continued their idol worship after Moses had arrived and they were not repentant of their idolatry. We simply don't know. And this is distressing to us, that this scene, that God said he's going to relent and yet he brings about this, what seems to be a very severe discipline into the life of the people of Israel. But understand that it, this is, while it's distressing, this is not inconsistent with scripture and with the covenant. The very covenant that people of Israel have signed on for is that if they sin, there are going to be disciplines. There are curses that go with the covenant if they don't keep it. But God in many places, what we'll see even for believers, for his own people, brings about earthly consequences, even earthly death as a part of those consequences. In fact, we know that all sin is really a result, all death is a result of sin and the fall, even for the people of God. And in view of covenant unfaithfulness, we even see warnings in the New Testament where God says if you actually take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, that this may lead to some people getting sick or weak or even dying. To violate the covenant deserves death, but God doesn't destroy the entire covenant community. He's still keeping his promise to the covenant community in general. 
God is sparing Israel from the full weight of his wrath. But because he loves Israel, he will discipline them by removing some from their midst. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul is talking about church discipline, he says that a little leaven, that's like yeast, leavens through the whole lump of dough. In other words, what he's saying is that if God were to allow sin to run rampant amongst God's people without discipline and without punishment, it would have a dire effect on the rest of the body of believers. And so here's my question for you. Instead of giving us the fullness of wrath, God disciplines his children. But the question for us is, how do we respond? God's discipline is not to hurt us or to punish us. He punishes like, or he disciplines like a good father. It's not to drive his children away. It's to call them back to himself, to restore them into right relationship. The response of an unrepentant idolater is when God disciplines them, is to run away to have their heart grow harder and grow cold. The response of those who are brokenhearted over their idolatry is that they actually move towards God, who, who while he meets out discipline in, in, in the longing of his heart is to draw us home. And so that's what we do. We come back to him. Well, lastly, I want you to see, instead of God giving, pouring out the full weight of his wrath on our idolatry, God instead gives us a covenant mediator. But in order to see this, we actually have to look through the lines of the bad news. You see, there is a foreshadowing in this text of glorious things, but the foreshadowing can only be seen in the midst of some very bad news. Now, here's what Moses does in response to God bringing about his discipline upon the people of Israel. As Moses says to God, take me instead, he goes back up on the mountain and he says, don't kill everyone. Would you relent? If your relenting demands a sacrifice, of atonement, if in your justice of your wrath you demand that one stand in the place of the people, then take me. He uses the word, blot me out, kill me instead of them. Moses is essentially offering himself as an atonement for Israel's sin. He's thinking to himself, perhaps my blood, my death could suffice to cover over their sin. But God looks at Moses and he says no, and actually he gets very specific. He says no, every man whose every sinner will be blotted out. In other words, what God is telling Moses is, Moses, you cannot pay for the sin of others because you have your own sin to pay for. Moses cannot atone for the people of God because he himself is a sinner. Even Moses will be blotted out. In other words, no mere man, no sinful man can mediate, can intervene, and it can cover over our sins. And so what does this say? It means we need a better mediator a mediator between us and God who can actually atone for our sins. In the midst of this, there's, there's a, a tacit promise in what God goes on to say in the last few verses of Exodus 32. In Exodus 2.34, God says this, But now go, lead the people to the place for which I have spoken to you. In other words, God says this, You have been so uncovenantly, uncovenantally unfaithful, but I'm going to continue to give you covenant blessings. I'm going to continue to take you towards the promised land. You keep moving in that direction. I'm going to overlook. I'm going to relent. I'm going to discipline, but I will not give you the full force of my wrath. I will keep my promises. I will bring you home. And what that assumes is that God is saying, Moses, you're not the mediator, but I will provide a mediator. You see, the only way in which God can be just and merciful is if there is one who ultimately takes the full brunt of the wrath, who mediates our relationship between us and God. And that mediator is Christ. 
You see, what Moses cannot do, Christ did. Christ accomplishes what Moses couldn't do and what you loving mothers and fathers can't do for your children. Our God took the bitter cup of our idolatry, our ground-up idolatry, and he drank it. He took the full measure of God's wrath. He took the plague of darkness. And when Jesus pleaded for God to relent, there was no relenting, so that our sins may be atoned for. And this is a beautiful truth. This is not simply just true for us who come after the cross, but this is true for the people of Israel. It's how God could send them on their way so they could experience covenant blessings despite their covenant unfaithfulness. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, it says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you and I, Moses, me, you. But we are justified by His grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means for the cleansing, for the covering of sin, by His blood, to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. That's to say God is just and right and good. Because in His divine forbearance, it says, He had passed over former sins. In other words, the effect of Jesus' death on the cross didn't just forgive your sins and my sins, but actually it picked up the sins of thousands of years of the past to wash away a whole history of sin. That is so beautiful. Because what this means is if God could wash away by the blood of Jesus the sin of a whole generation of Israelites, how much more can he cover over your past and atone for your sin? Here's what I would call you to as two applications this morning as you go to worship together as a family. It's this. First, in view of the cross of Christ and the atonement there, repent in tears. Most pastors can tell you this and counselors that when a husband and a wife in a crisis, perhaps a wife has said to the husband, that's it, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm, and they, they come in in a crisis counseling moment and he comes into the room and he says, Please, he's repenting in tears, but there is a right repentance and a false repentance. That a false repentance that pastors and counselors will hear, will hear a husband talking about how she can't do this. Oh, I would miss you too bad. Oh, my goodness, well, this would devastate me. But the actually truly repentant husband comes in and says, I see my sin. I see how what I have done hurts you, spouse, hurts you, lovely wife. I see how lovely you are and how my sin hurts you. That's a truly repentant spouse. And that's what I would say today. True repentance is repentance in tears, not for the consequences of your sin, although that's understandable that we would weep over that, but consequences, but the weeping over the fact of what our sin has cost God. It took his son's life to atone for our sin. That's real repentance. Second, I would also say this, that there's the repent part, there's the belief part. And that is simply declare this, that Jesus is better than your idols. Your idols don't die for you, they demand that you die for them. But Jesus, our Lord, the creator of the universe, Yahweh, the great I am, is the one who has said, I love you so much. I'm going to be so faithful to my covenant for you that I'm going to die for you. No, that is a God who is worthy of giving your allegiance to of giving your life to, of sacrificing for, and of building your life around. King Chapel, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Enjoy your time of worship this morning.